Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's program, the Market Insights Notes on the Week Ahead. Hello, this is David Kelly. I'm Chief Strategist here at J.P. Morgan Funds. Today is January 28th, 2019. With age comes wisdom. And one bit of wisdom my wife and I have acquired over the years is that when moving residents, you need to accurately label the boxes. Nothing is more disheartening than a mountain of random, unlabeled cardboard containers when you're trying to re-establish order in the wake of chaos. In a similar fashion, investors this week have a lot to unpack in understanding the economic implications of the government shutdown, the peak of the earnings season, the January employment report, Chinese trade talks, weakening global PMIs, and the first Fed meeting of the year. So in the interest of clarity, I thought I would go through these boxes one by one, starting with what I think is an appropriate label. Box number one, the government shutdown, labelled as an early landing on a long runway. On Friday, the President signed a bill funding the federal government through February 15th, and ending on its 35th day, the longest government shutdown in history. Over the next few weeks, a bipartisan committee of senators and representatives will try to hammer out a compromise. This should not, in the end, be that difficult, since both sides agree on the need for border security and neither side would want to be blamed for an encore of the last five weeks. The full cost of the shutdown is difficult to assess. The 380,000 federal workers who were furloughed represent 0.25% of America's 150 million payroll employees. Our GDP is currently roughly $21 trillion, so losing 0.25% of it for five weeks would amount to a cost of roughly $5 billion. However, the actual impact was likely multiple times that. First of all, there's the spending not done by the 800,000 federal workers who went without paychecks. Even with back pay, some of this spending will be lost for good, as will the work and spending of many federal government contractors that that were also laid off. Moreover, the most disruptive element of the shutdown was its negative impact on confidence, which will likely show up in Tuesday's Consumer Confidence Survey, and the uncertainty it created, which likely postponed important business decisions. All told, we had expected the economy to gradually slow from 3% real GDP growth in 2018, to 2% growth in the second half of 2019. However, as best we can tell, hampered by a lack of government data, this slowdown may now kick in a little bit earlier, with growth averaging 2% over the fourth and first quarters combined. It should be noted, however, that in the absence of other shocks, it should be possible to maintain this roughly 2% average growth pace well into 2020 and perhaps beyond. Box number two, the jobs report, labelled as Continued momentum despite shutdown distortions. Friday's jobs report will be complicated and distorted, but ultimately should show continued strength. Even without a government shutdown, this would have been a difficult report to interpret, since the data for January each year contained both population adjustments to the household survey, from which the unemployment rate is derived, and benchmark revisions to the payroll survey. In addition, 800,000 workers were either on furlough or working without pay during the employment survey week in January which ran from January 6th through January 12th. Of this total, 420,000 working without pay will have been counted as employed by both surveys. However, the 380,000 federal workers on furlough should show up as unemployed in the household survey. In addition, there will have been some employees of federal contractors who will have been at least temporarily unemployed. However, the job market reacts with a lag to economic growth, and due to strong growth through at least the third quarter of last year, we expect the January employment report to still show some momentum, with close to 200,000 jobs added and the unemployment rate only temporarily halted on its downward track. 
Box number three, the earnings season, labelled as a predictable moderation in growth. Through last Thursday, 106 S&P 500 companies had reported earnings for the fourth quarter, with another 126 firms set to report this week. Overall, the earnings season has been weaker than in recent quarters. We now expect 16% year-over-year as a gain in operating earnings for the fourth quarter, which, although impressive by historical standards, represents a significant drop from the 29% average gain seen in the first three quarters of 2018. In addition, positive surprises in both revenues and earnings are running at their lowest levels in six quarters and eight quarters respectively. There may be a little bit of kitchen sink accounting here, whereby companies use accounting flexibility to bury bad news in the last quarter of the old year in order to make it easier to report strong gains going forward. However, analysts will be increasingly watching expectations of 2019 earnings, since the slide from slow earnings growth to outright decline at any stage in 2019 or 2020 will be bad news for both the markets and the economy. Box number four, global PMIs, labelled as a little bit softer now. Friday's purchasing manager data from around the world will give an early read on global economic activity at the start of 2019, and the picture is likely to be downbeat. The Eurozone manufacturing flash PMI fell to a 67-month low in January, with weakness in Germany swamping a partial rebound in the French numbers. The Eurozone is still expanding, as should be confirmed by numbers on fourth-quarter GDP and December unemployment due out this week. However, trade tensions, political instability and a host of negative one-time factors have slowed economic growth to a crawl. Japan's flash manufacturing PMI was also weak in January, falling to exactly 16.0, or 50.0, its lowest level since August of 2016. Friday's releases will likely show below 50 readings in China, Korea and Taiwan, reflecting a downturn in global trade. As in the case of Europe, this is, for now, just very slow growth, rather than recession. However, the broad weakness in the global economy, which could also show up in low readings in Canada and Mexico, highlights the importance of reducing political and trade uncertainty. Box number five, Chinese trade talks, labelled as progress likely but no deal before the deadline. A Chinese delegation will be in Washington this week to discuss trade issues. The U.S. administration has demanded structural changes in China's economic model to reduce the U.S.'s mammoth trade deficit with China. While both sides have a strong interest in coming to an agreement, no one should be under any illusion that a deal will fundamentally change the trajectory of either economy. China may well reform its strong-arm tactics with regard to transfers of intellectual property and tone down its made-in-China 2025 rhetoric. However, it remains committed to technological transformation and is probably well positioned to achieve this, even with less access to U.S. R&D. The U.S. may also see its trade deficit with China fall. However, this will likely be replaced by bigger trade deficits with other nations, as the ultimate drivers of the U.S. trade deficit are a growing budget deficit and a high U.S. dollar, neither of which show near-term signs of declining. That being said, this week's talks will likely be described as tough with no breakthrough. Both sides will want to be seen as having fought a tough fight. Negotiations will likely extend to the March 1st deadline for the imposition of higher tariffs on Chinese goods. One more month of uncertainty will clearly do the global economy no good, but an agreement, if achieved at that point, would be a big positive for global markets. Box 6. Fed policy, labelled as a challenge in communications. Finally, the Federal Reserve will hold its first FOMC policy meeting of the year on Tuesday and Wednesday, followed by a statement in a Jay Powell press conference. While the committee is not expected to take any action at this meeting, the statement and press conference will need to be handled very carefully if they are to get their message across correctly. 
The statement will likely strike a more dovish tone than the last FOMC statement on December 19th. It will likely acknowledge the increased uncertainty in the economic outlook due to the government shutdown and the lack of many key economic reports in recent weeks. It will probably also comment on a somewhat softer inflation outlook due to recently lower oil prices and the increased volatility in markets in recent months. In his press conference, Jay Powell will likely make the case for not raising the federal funds rate in March, marking the first pause in monetary tightening since September of 2017. He will likely emphasize that the Fed is not particularly concerned about a near-term recession, but rather recognizes that they are likely close to a neutral rate, and that given current uncertainties, it makes sense to hold off on further tightening for now. He will probably reassert that any dovish stance or any more dovish stance by the Fed is in reaction to changing financial conditions rather than any political pressure. Chairman Powell may also be asked about the Fed's balance sheet reduction program, which has now reduced total assets of the Fed by $408 billion since it commenced in October 2017. He will very likely confirm that the program will continue for some time to come. However, he may want to emphasize that if it has ended faster than initially anticipated, it would neither be a capitulation to political pressure nor a sign of a more dovish policy overall, but rather because the banking system is seeing its reserves fall at the Fed faster than anticipated. This is certainly the case. The excess reserves held by U.S. banks at the Federal Reserve, that is to say the reserves in excess of those needed to back deposits, have fallen from a peak of $2.7 trillion in August of 2014, to just over $1.5 trillion today, and continue to fall much faster than the Fed's assets. The reason for this is that excess reserves are just one line item on the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet, and faster growth in other line items, most notably currency in the hands of the public, has squeezed excess bank reserves. In the long run, given its new operating procedure of trying to maintain the federal funds rate in a band, the Fed doesn't want these excess reserves to fall back to pre-crisis levels. However, it's a complicated story, and explaining this without appearing to send an unintended signal to markets will be a very delicate task for Mr. Powell. For investors, all of this needs to be balanced against valuations that still look relatively attractive for U.S. stocks, and even more so for international stocks. In addition, in the months ahead, some of these uncertainties could be resolved, and as they are, markets could turn somewhat more positive. As is the case when unpacking boxes, while the work is tiring now, there are reasons to look forward to a day when the environment is both clearer and more comfortable. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, please tune in again next week. If you have any questions in the meantime, please reach out to your J.P. Morgan representative. This content has been produced for information purposes only. And as such, the views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or recommendation to buy or sell any investment or interest thereto. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the recipient. The material was prepared without regard to specific objectives, financial situation, or needs of any particular receiver. Any research in this asset has been obtained and may have been acted upon by J.P. Morgan Asset Management for its own purpose. The results of such research are being made available as additional information and do not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, statements of financial market trends, or investment techniques and strategies expressed are those of J.P. Morgan Asset Management, unless otherwise stated, as of the date of production. They are considered to be reliable at that time, but no warranty as to the accuracy and reliability or completeness in respect of any error or omission is accepted. They may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. J.P. Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated. 
Copyright 2018. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Company.